Joe Lieberman represented Connecticut in the U.S. Senate from 1989 to 2013. And in 2000, he ran as Al Gore's vice presidential running mate on the Democratic ticket. Now he serves as the national chairman of No Labels. Today he will discuss the critical importance of bipartisanship at this moment in American history. Let's listen in. You know, Senator Lieberman has been uh, the rabbi, uh, both figuratively and literally, of No Labels. Um, uh, just uh, a man of, of extraordinary uh, experience, extraordinary balance, extraordinary intellect, uh, and maybe most importantly, extraordinary goodwill and commitment to the country. Um, Senator Lieberman has uh, a career that uh, few have matched and no one has exceeded, uh, in my estimation, as a public servant. Um, and, and I think uh, I, I wasn't around at the time, but there is evidence in the historic record that suggests that everyone ar around him knew that he uh, was destined for this kind of greatness. When he was at Yale, his nickname was Senator. Um, so uh, it, it must have been apparent even then. One other fun fact, uh, um, he ran for the state Senate in Connecticut uh, in 1970. Um, and uh, one of his young uh, campaign staffers was a fellow named Bill Clinton. So um, he, he has, uh, he's, he's traveled in uh, rare air, has been an extraordinary leader, 24 years in the Senate, um, vice president uh, uh, candidate, uh, ran with Al Gore in, in uh, 2000. Um, but I think maybe perhaps most relevant for uh, this group, uh, he has been a source of extraordinary uh, guidance and leadership, and uh, his presence uh, from the very beginning has demonstrated a seriousness of purpose uh, about no labels for all of the outside to see. Uh, and when you talk bipartisanship, um, uh, many would suggest that that uh, uh, if it wasn't invented by Joe Lieberman, um, bipartisanship's middle name is Joe Lieberman. He uh, he he demonstrated. Uh, that throughout his uh, career in the Senate, and so his his bona fides in that regard uh, make him uh, just the ideal uh, uh, thought leader here at No Label. So, with that as introduction, it's it's really a personal pleasure for me to welcome our leader and friend, Senator Joe Lieberman. Thank you for your gracious words. Uh, Andy, uh, you've been the best, and it's been wonderful to get to know you at No Labels. Also, I want to thank you for uh, awarding me a rabbinical degree without forcing me to go to seminary. So that was really very kind of you. When I was a Yale undergraduate, uh, President Kennedy spoke at um, one of the graduations and got an honorary degree. And uh, he said at the outset that he now felt that he had the best of both worlds, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. So <laughs> I don't know how that relates to being called a rabbi. But anyway, I thank you. Uh, thanks everybody for being here. This is a uh, Friday afternoon in, this, in a very weird summer. I thought that um, I would start by kind of taking us back and then I'll come forward and be glad to answer any questions you have. Um, one of the things that um, I've been doing when I'm not uh, 
practicing law or working for no labels or doing other nonprofit stuff from home here is to uh, go back and um, sort of look at problem solving through American history and um, in my own history. And I've been trying to write a little bit uh, during this time. And um, I'll just say very broadly uh, that um, negotiation and compromise and problem solving is inherent, is, is a necessity in a democracy. If you're in an autocracy or a totalitarian government, it doesn't matter because the dictator will tell everybody what to do. But when you're in a democratic republic such as ours, where you need to bring together uh, a majority to get anything done. And the country now is as big as it is, 335 million, extremely diverse. Uh, it takes a process of, uh, of thoughtful listening to one another, of, um, of negotiation, of, of compromise. It takes civility uh, and respect for one another. So you, you are willing to even get into the room or at the table with the other side. And of course it takes, in the most conventional sense, um, bipartisanship, certainly what it takes in our time and why what No Labels has been uh, doing so well. Um, I, I'm gonna go way back to the beginning because I wanna make the point that this kind of uh, compromise and negotiation was critically necessary to the very founding of our country. Um, it was somewhat so in the Constitutional Convention in 1776, but they all agreed that it was time to break away from Great Britain and form an independent country. They had some fascinating negotiations about the wording in the Declaration of Independence, which is the best expression of our purpose. So we have these self-evident truths that all of us are created equal and uh, endowed by our creator with the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What, in the first draft, I, I don't want to take time to look it up, that Jefferson proposed for the Declaration, he had he used the word sacred and inviolable. Viable. And uh, Franklin uh, objected or, or offered a, a counterproposal because he thought it was too important. And uh, uh, he had been. He had come back from Europe, where he had fallen somewhat under the influence of um, of the um, of the Enlightenment philosophers, particularly Hume. So he asked that that um, language be removed, which Jefferson did. And so I, I, I was reminded in reading this recently that there was a 37-year difference in age between uh, Franklin and Jefferson at the time of the Constitutional Convention, the first one, uh, both of them. So in other words, Franklin was much older and he was quite revered and, and respected. So Jefferson deferred to him and took the sacred language out. But when John Adams saw it, who was also on the, on the drafting committee, quite a drafting committee, he argued that those words that became um, the endowment of our creator be put back in. So there was a, and, and um, everybody agreed, even Franklin who didn't like it because he knew that there was that, certainly that was, there was that Calvinist part of America, uh, uh, Bible believing, if you will, that uh, was also part of the 
the country and how to be included. I mean, at the Constitutional Convention, and I'll, I'll do this quickly, there were, there were major differences. I mean, the truth is, if you go back and read the history, that um, when they came to Philadelphia in 1779, they were not even, I'm sorry, 89, they were not even um, uh, in agreement about what they were there for. Everybody agreed that the Articles of Confederation were weak, but um, most of them thought there'd be just some modification uh, to the Articles. But um, uh, Hamilton and Madison particularly had other thoughts in mind. And in the end, everybody agreed, of course, that they needed to create a new form of government. There, there were major obstacles because they were very different. The most obvious differences are large state, large population states, small population states, and free states and slave states. And um, uh, there was, at, at one point during that summer, the, uh, the Constitutional Convention actually uh, went into gridlock because they couldn't agree on uh, whether the, the, the Congress they were going to create would reflect population, which obviously the large states led by, large population states led by Virginia on it, or there'd be some uh, representation for all the states who were led by the small population states led by, believe it or not, uh, New Jersey. And um, there was ultimately a compromise, but it took a long time. We like to call it, or I like to call it, the Connecticut Compromise because it was first suggested by two of the uh, re uh, delegates to the convention from Connecticut, Ellsworth and Sherman, which was logically enough to have two chambers, one reflecting uh, population uh, being the House and the other in which every state would be equal, obviously, uh, being the Senate, but it, it was in contention as things went along, and it it became part of the debate, the, the second debate between big debate between free states and slave states, um, because the um, the southern states asked that the slaves be counted in population, and of course the the free states said, okay, but if you do that, they have to be liberated. They have to be free. Well, of course, the South didn't want to uh, do that. And um, uh, they, they really wanted the slaves to be counted so that they would have greater representation based on population in the at least the House. And uh, uh, James Wilson, who was a delegate from Pennsylvania, which was one of the other big states, at, that, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and I believe Massachusetts constituted about 40% of the population. But, um, uh, and it was Wilson of Pennsylvania that proposed this really outrageous, and we're in the middle, around Juneteenth, we're in the middle of a time of racial upheaval again in our country, uh, this compromise that um, the slaves, five slaves would be counted as three people. And um, it was, and the South accepted it, and the North, the abolitionists, so-called, accepted it just to reach a compromise. It was a very painful compromise when you think about it. They actually, the Northern states came back and said, if you're going to do this, we insist that we ban um, the addition of any more slaves in America. Internet, we stop international slave trading into America. And uh, the the 
South agreed to that, but on a, again, a compromise and really an odious compromise, which was that it wouldn't happen until um, for at least 20 years until 1808. Of course, it took a lot longer um, than that. But in the end, they were able to compromise enough to form the government. And that's the point I want to make. Not all compromises are, are principally worth making, but in the end, um, their goal was, I mean, we always talk about putting the country first. Uh, their goal was to form the country and they were able to do it. In the final uh, presentation that Franklin made to the convention before it voted, because he was the chairman of something called the Committee of Detail that blended it all together. And this I will read. He, he reminded the delegates that he had come to the convention favoring a Congress that was composed of one house popularly elected, because he was from Pennsylvania, and no Senate. Now he was offering a very different compromise, uh, which was two chambers. Um, and he threw in a little bone at the end for the uh, uh, pop high population states by, by providing in the Constitution that all revenue bills uh, would begin in the House. And of course, that's still the rule. But in offering the, the series of what he described as difficult compromises uh, and the change of heart that he had to go through, uh, he offered a story, this wonderful story from his earlier life. He said, when we were young tradesmen in Philadelphia and we had joints of wood that didn't quite fit together, you would take a little from one side and then shave a little from others until you had a joint that would hold together for centuries. And so too, we here at this convention must each part with some of our demands if we're going to have a constitution that will hold together. He didn't say for centuries, but by God it has. And then he closed with the wonderful sentence which really could be emblazoned on the no labels flag. Compromises may not make great heroes, but they do make great democracies. So, uh, you know, I, I think I've gone long enough. I was going to take just a moment. Okay, it's 416. I'll take a quick moment to bring you way up to date in something I was involved in. And it's not much celebrated as a great problem-solving experience. The great ones we talk about in modern era are Reagan and O'Neill saving Social Security in the 80s. Um, uh, Clinton and Gingrich, a whole host welfare reform crime bill, which is now coming back to bite at Joe Biden a little bit. And of course, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. But there was a fascinating compromise in 2001 on education reform that brought together the newly elected President Bush. Let's skip over how he got to take office for the moment. And uh, Ted Kennedy. And uh, Evan Bayh and, and me, who uh, offered a proposal on behalf of the Democratic Leadership Council. And I, you know, I'll do this briefly. To, to President Bush's credit, he had uh, been involved in an interesting educational reform in Texas, and he had a passion about it, which was to demand accountability in how education money was being spent. In other words, let's not just focus on how much we put in to the schools, let's focus on what we get out and how the kids are being educated. And that necessitated 
<clears throat> testing. Um, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was the big federal law, it still is, to provide aid to local public schools that had been adopted in 1965. It was due for reauthorization in 2000, but um, the, the people in Congress were not able to reach an agreement. So they held it over until um, 2001. Teddy Kennedy was the head of the, uh, he started out actually as not the head of the Education Committee, but about May of 2001, Jim Jeffords left the Republican caucus. I came over to the Democratic caucus and, and we had a 51-49 margin. But Teddy wanted to reauthorize the um, Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And he wanted to spend more money on education. He wasn't much for accountability that Bush wanted. Uh, but he was practical. And the, here's the point I want to make about Kennedy, which probably many of you know, but I was privileged to see. I mean, Kennedy in public view and, and really was the ultimate liberal Democrat, not, a, not a, an extremist, but a definitely passionate ideological liberal Democrat. But he could be extremely pragmatic when he wanted to get something done. And I watched him a few times and I talked to uh, Republicans he worked with on his uh, health education committee. And um, he followed a process that he called or others called the Kennedy rule where on a big bill, he would sit down with a, a ranking Republican, maybe others on the committee, and they'd list, their staffs would list all the issues that were part of the bill. And they would divide them in three. The first part would be ones that they agreed on. There was no controversy. The second part would be um, ones that it was possible that they could agree on. And the third part would be ones that they would never agree on. So Kennedy would say, let's take that third group of issues, which we're never going to agree on, and take them off the table. Now, we've got the two parts left. One, we pretty much agree on already, and the second, uh, we ought to try to negotiate. And uh, in that way, with um, mostly not with moderate Republicans, but with real conservative Republicans like Orrin Hatch, Mike Enzi, and in 2001, Judd Gregg of New Hampshire, he worked things out. So, I mean, basically, uh, this, and, uh, uh, Evan and I had a bill that the Democratic Leadership Council had put together, which in some ways was the perfect bridge. And we hadn't seen it that way because we were in favor of more money for um, public education because the, uh, the gap in education, which still exists between rich and poor and uh, white and minority was terrible. And uh, the numbers of, I mean, at that point, uh, uh, 12th grade, um, African-Americans were testing at the, uh, at the eighth grade level. So it was awful. And uh, we decided, that, and we also had accountability in our bill. It was a long story, but everybody wanted to get it done. And in the end, we adopted something which Bush named called the No Child Left Behind Act. Incidentally, it had dramatic increases in funding, as Teddy wanted, for um, federal support for education, both elementary and secondary and the companion uh, Individuals with Disabilities Act. 
But it also had, for the first time, in what was the most significant reform in uh, American uh, federal education policy since 1965, uh, the requirement of testing of every student in a school in America that got federal funding. I mean, what happened to it afterward uh, in implementation is a more complicated story, but there was a case where uh, at least three groups of people with different motivations were able to uh, compromise and get something big done. And that, that's, that's what we're about. I mean, No Labels was started by Nancy in response to the increasing partisanship in Congress about 10 years ago, which meant that, that the kind of story I just told about No Child Left Behind just wasn't happening. And um, it, we've really grown thanks to the help of so many people here uh, and the most significant accomplishment, obviously, is the creation of the House Problem Solvers Caucus and now the bicameral meetings and growing numbers in the Senate. And it comes at a time that, if anything, is more uh, desperately in need of problem solvers than ever before. Um, when I went to school a long time ago, when I met Bill Clinton, um, we used to learn in political science class that we had two great parties and they played a very positive role in our government because they uh, created coalitions of minorities to form a majority. That's the only way you would elect a president. That's the only way you would um, get legislation passed. So they were unifiers, if you will. And of course, today they become dividers and both parties face um, very unusual challenges. I mean, the Democratic Party has um, uh, a real strong challenge from the ideological left. In some ways, it's even, and I, I don't like to, I'm not a name caller, but it really is self-described itself as the socialistic left. And it's also, <clears throat> I think, um, ultimately isolationist. The Republican Party has suddenly and dramatically been uh, remade in the image of, uh, of Donald Trump. And uh, it's hard to label it, but um, it's a very different party than it's been all of my life. In some sense, the two, it's an odd thing to say for a democracy, but the two families that have dominated um, the two major parties uh, in recent memory are now essentially gone. Uh, and so are their, for the moment, their followers, which is the, the Bush Bush family and its politics in the Republican Party and the Clinton family and its politics in the Democratic Party. Both parties are very different. And if anything, um, what's happening in both parties and their the battles within them uh, makes what No Labels is doing uh, all the more important. I mean, um, look, I'm, I live now in Riverdale, New York. My congressman happens to be Elliot Engel. Um, you know, he's a progressive Democrat, uh, but not progressive enough. And he's being challenged and, uh, by a candidate who is running at him from the far left and is supported by the Justice Democrats, which is the Ocasio-Cortez group. So you've got um, Nancy Pelosi, um, Jim Clyburn, a lot of the House leadership, um, Chuck Schumer in supporting Elliot Engel. And on the other side, you have Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. And uh, I tell you, it's gonna be close, and uh, it'll, it'll be an important uh, primary this Tuesday. 
Um, Senator, the, it, it's, uh, I, I could listen to you all day and night. Um, <laughs> okay. And you've covered a lot of history and a lot of ground. You're very good at this, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> We, we do have a few questions, I, I, just a couple of points I'd like to make, and then we're going to turn to the questions. One is, I just want to give a special shout out to Congressman Darren Soto, who is on uh, with us, one of our problem solvers uh, from Florida. So, Congressman, thank you. Uh, thank you for being with us. And we have a moment. Just love to turn it over to you and give you a chance to say hi. Um, uh, secondly, I, I, where you left off, I, I'm going to ask a question that, that maybe we can defer to the end if we have time, which is... Um, uh, 240 years later, uh, uh, relevant to the first part of your story, or 20 years later, relevant to the second part of your story, uh, it's amazing uh, how much we've declined in terms of our capacity to uh, get at tough issues in a bipartisan way and, and get to solutions. Uh, two of the obvious structural elements, one, one you spoke to, which is the uh, increasing polarization and tribalism that is reflected in uh, party structure. Uh, the second is the uh, intense um, concentration of power in leadership, um, uh, both of which I think uh, are uh, uh, foundational reasons for the need for the work of No Labels, uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus, and the Bicamerals. And, I'd love for you to comment on that later, but let me, uh, so we can get some other questions first. Uh, let me first turn to uh, Congressman Soto, uh, just to, uh, Congressman, you just a minute or two just to say hi and uh, get your thoughts. And then Chris Freilich, you'll have the first question. Thanks, Andy. And uh, I gotta say, Senator Lieberman is taking us to school today, way back to the, the Declaration of Independence and uh, the Constitution. Uh, let me start by saying that uh, absolutely compromise is essential to functioning democracy. Often when we read history books, though, we forget how long it took for those members to get to that compromise and the passionate debates, literally almost fights and duels it took before they reached to that compromise. So living through it, it feels a lot longer than reading about it in the history books. And, and those passionate debates continue to go on to today. Um, but I really want to just focus on how there is hope for the Congress. Obviously, Problem Solvers Caucus is a big part of that. We filled in the gap in many of these uh, big issues happening right now. Uh, contrary to a lot of popular belief, the Congress still compromises. When you look at the four major bills we passed for COVID-19 uh, response, uh, those were compromises uh, that met the great needs of the country during this pandemic, both the healthcare crisis and the economic crisis. And we also have to understand uh, conferencing. You're always gonna have, the, the House is gonna put forward a product that may be more towards the Democratic majority, the Senate's gonna put a product that may be more towards the Republican majority, but it's key for both of them to do so, so that we could get to conference and hammer out the differences. And we've been, when we've been able to get to conference, which has been in the last four bills, we saw bipartisan compromises emerge where the vast majority of the Congress has supported it. Uh, and so uh, that's really an important part of the work that we've been uh, doing and everything from telehealth to paycheck protection program uh, to uh, reforming the unemployment to all these different things that the problem solvers have particularly worked on, especially the small business stuff. Is, 
been a big focus of ours. Uh, and so uh, we appreciate everybody um, being involved in this group. Uh, we are the bridge between the parties. And uh, there's one thing we all have in common, which is we're all pragmatic members. It doesn't mean we don't have our passions. It doesn't mean we don't have our issues where we may be a little more further to the right or the left, but it means we're ready to deal uh, for the good of the country. So thank you all for your great work to uh, support us and uh, look forward to hearing more of the conversation from today. Congressman, thank you. Um, okay, sure. Chris, uh, you're up and then uh, Jerry Harmon's on deck. And then I think uh, Congressman Brad Schneider, another member of the caucus is with us and he'll, he'll be next. So Chris, uh, you've got the floor. Thanks, Andy. First, I want to say hi to, I see a lot of new faces from Philadelphia here. We're looking forward to getting the city and the state uh, organized starting next week. And Senator, thank you for being here and thanks for the history lesson. It, it reminded me of, of a book I read recently that talked about the electoral college being more of a compromise, not based on any real principle. And it's, it's really whipping around everything in our politics today. I wonder it's outside of the scope of no labels, but I just wondered if you thought we might in our lifetime see anything happen with the electoral college system. Well, of course, I, I, I have scars about the electoral college from 2000, as Hillary does from last time. I mean, it is, I don't want to take too long, but it, it, it was a strange compromise at the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention. The, the idea of an electoral college was actually first raised, I think, by Hamilton. Um, as, a, as a place that would elect senators in the states. Uh, part of what the founders were dealing with was that they were trying to create an independent nation and they wanted it to be a republic where the people controlled, but they were a little nervous about giving the people too much power. And uh, uh, that's part of why they wanted uh, the electoral college to choose senators originally. They didn't do that, but the, as, you, as you, I'm sure you know, they, they had state legislatures choose senators until the early part of the last century, uh, when popular election senators came along. The Electoral College was similar. They, they worried that um, the public might elect somebody who really, if you can believe this, wasn't fit to be president. And uh, the Electoral College would therefore have the uh, capacity, regardless of what the vote was, to, um, to decide otherwise. Um, so that's why they, they put the Electoral College in. In the end, I think you got to go with the majority. Do I think it's going to, in other words, I wish that the, the majority of us would choose who our president was or the plurality. Do I think that might change uh, anytime soon? I doubt it, although you may know there is a movement which is making some progress, but slowly to create a multi-state compact in which states would vote in their legislature signed by the governor that their electoral votes, in other words, it wouldn't change, it wouldn't change the constitution, but their electoral votes from that state would go to the ticket that got the most national votes uh, to the majority. And the last time I looked, there were 10 or 12 states that had signed on to that. And I think they needed 20. Uh, they had all agreed if they reached 20, they'd put it into effect. But uh, it seems to have a life of its own, uh, strangely enough. Chris, thanks for the question. Uh, if if uh, I'm, uh, when I call on you, if you could tell us where you're from as well, uh, please. Uh, Jerry Harmon, you're next, and then we'll go to Congressman uh, Schneider and uh, and then to uh, Mike Precob. Jerry, you've got the floor. Hi. Uh, thank you so much. Um, 
this may be a little bit in where I'm sorry, Andy, you wanted us to say we're from what? From what where, state? Where, where are you from geographically? Uh, I'm from Los Angeles, California. Great. Thank you, Jerry. Um, and so um, thank you for all your comments, Senator Lieberman. This may be this a little bit off topic to the, the way we govern, but I think I'd love to hear your um, thoughts about the whole BLM movement, you know, the social inequality issues that we're having that are coming to the surface now and the potential solutions. We, just like we have in government right now, there seem to be some fairly extreme approaches potentially, you know, the, the strong law and order kind of on the Trump side and depending how you interpret that, defunding the police potentially on the other side, depending on how you define that. Um, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on how we get to a constructive solution to a real issue. Yeah, that's, I mean, I could speak for an hour about that and I, and I won't. I must say just personally, it's uh, really heartbreaking uh, to see that we're still dealing with the consequence with racial equality and racism in our country. I mean, I, where this is Juneteenth, as everybody knows, we go, this, it goes back 400 plus years to when slavery began. This is all about the time, two years after the end of the Civil War, that all the slaves were informed that they now were uh, liberated. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I was involved in the civil rights movement when I was younger. I went to Mississippi for a while, worked on a Freedom Vote campaign. I will say that real progress has been made in my lifetime. And, uh, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, the end of formal segregation and the advance of African-Americans in our society in various ways, but obviously an income gap, education gap, still too large. And a shocking display in recent times of uh, the disproportionate way in which black Americans, particularly men, are treated by law enforcement. And I'm a pro-law enforcement guy, so you're right. It's so typical of our time that the debate right now is uh, at least the loudest voices in the debate are either law and order or defund the police police and you know you can't defund the police really the police we're, we're a rule of law country the police I, well how things change i grew up the, the police were our friends they're on our side uh and yet for a lot of people uh, they uh, if you're african-american i think you didn't experience that so i don't have a better answer than to say ultimately uh, uh this can't be solved in a uh, speech at a political rally it can't even be solved, although we can be motivated by a public protest, particularly ones that are as remarkably diverse as the protests have been in our country. But in the end, it takes leaders who will sit down at a table and negotiate for sensible solutions. And uh, I hope and pray that happens. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, let, me, let me turn to Mike uh, Precob uh, next. Mike, go ahead. Senator, thank you. Uh, Tell us where you're from, if you could. Oh, I'm in Silicon Valley, California. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Senator, you are uh, one of my, part of one of my dream teams, you and John McCain. It wouldn't have made any difference which one of you were president. I, you know, would like to have seen Alan Simpson and uh, Bill Bradley is in the same way. Those are things I'd I would love to say, I don't know if we'll see that day. Now, to my question, <clears throat> and it really goes to no labels as well, um, do you all find it hard to recruit senators 
and representatives because they fear the pressure of their own party that if they were to join something that is this has this level of comedy, they would be offending their own party. And I think some of them probably have that fear and I think it makes it difficult. And, and if you guys find that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, let, let me say first, you're kind to talk about McCain and me and Bradley Simpson. Uh, the truth is that I think the country is ready for a bipartisan national ticket now. I really believe, and you can see it on some of the polling, that there's this broad middle group, Democrats, independents, Republicans, that really just want people to get together and get something done. Uh, the problem is neither major political party would nominate a bipartisan ticket. And uh, uh, it's pretty hard to uh, do, uh, carry out a successful third party ticket in this country. So uh, you're absolutely right. Your question is right on. And this is uh, really in a way what No Labels has decided it can, it can most do to uh, make our government or help our government work again, which is that any member of the House or Senate that decides to join the Problem Solvers Caucus, to work across party lines, does incur the uh, suspicion, if not the wrath, of their party leadership. I used to joke and say that one thing Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell agreed on is they didn't want Democrats and Republicans in the Senate to get together and form sort of separate caucuses around bills, which we used to call gangs. Uh, so this is where no labels comes in, because honestly, a lot of members of both parties in both houses want to break away from their parties on given issues. They know that they may risk seniority at worst, but they also may risk losing campaign money. And um, no labels essentially says to them, do what you think is right. Um, uh, be a problem solver. Sit down with members of the other party. And uh, if it makes your party so angry or some interest group are so angry that they deny you funding, we're going to do everything we possibly can to have your back and make that up. And, uh, you know, that's not, a, that's not pretty and it's not ideological, but it, it's real. And I think it's part of why we now have 50 members of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, 25 Republicans, 25 Democrats, because... We have empowered them to do what they want to do. I will tell you that, um, generally speaking, when I speak to members of Congress today, they're not happy with their professional lives because they really worked hard to get to Congress to get something done, and then they get pulled apart. And I think we have the power to uh, empower them uh, to do what they want to do. So you're absolutely right. The parties frown on what we're asking for, but, but we, we're making progress. We, have, we are a movement with real momentum. I think more momentum than any other political reform movement in America today that really wants the system to work as opposed to wants to divide the system. Thank you, Senator. And look, it, it, for all of us on the phone, it, it really underscores the importance of the work that the no, no Labels team is doing in building out our national network. And I know many of you on the phone have become uh, active parts of that in your uh, various locales. But I think today we're up to 16 uh, uh, local and regional uh, groups with uh, leadership established uh, that can serve as uh, 
the national engine that can drive uh, a response to the question that Mike raised, which is we've got to provide the air cover and the financing, uh, at least in part, uh, to create incentives uh, because so much of the incentives now are so far left and, and so far to the right. Let me turn to uh, Bob, Bob Lipstein. Uh, Bob, I know you have a question about the media, and I, I would uh, in advance just refer you to a, just a beautifully written opinion piece by Tony Ritter, who may be on the phone uh, with us. Um, uh, Tony um, uh, addressed this uh, issue of, of the media and politics, uh, I thought, just uh, beautifully this week in an opinion piece. But uh, Bob, let me turn it to you and if you can tell us where you're from. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Bob Lipstein from the Philadelphia area. Senator, appreciate your comments and thank you for joining us uh, today. I have to ask, uh, just before I get to my real question, are you still the vice president in your house? <laughs> so, okay. Um, okay. I'll, I'll tell that joke when you're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, my question is, if you have any thoughts on the, the role our group can play, uh, with the media and helping to uh, have the media execute their proper role in our society and whether or not you have any views that you might want to share on um, whether or not they're uh, playing their proper role uh, and how, uh, um, uh, and if not, what, what we can be doing. Okay, good question. Um, you know, Andy asked about why, why have we come to a point 20 years after No Child Left Behind, a couple hundred years after the Constitution, where it's pretty hard to, to do that kind of compromising uh, to get something done. And part of the problem is the media. I mean, the media have become a, a divisive force in our society. And uh, um, you can see it most of all in the cable news channels, which have picked out a market share, if you will, and play to it. So, uh, and, and the evening is, as all of us know, it's very hard to get news. You basically get a point of ideolo ideology, a point of view. And uh, I think the one who the people are getting most from that are the, are the folks at Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu, et cetera. Because we're, eventually we reach a point in the evening where we want to go uh, get away from the news because there is no news and get. So, uh, you know, and I, when I was growing up, and I bet you were still, uh, you know, we only had the three broadcast uh, networks, and uh, I had no idea about the ideology uh, or the or the party of any of the people who were broadcasting. I mean, it was uh, it's just what they were just telling us the news, and uh, uh, that's gone, and it has an effect in Washington. I saw it during my time because a certain number of people will play to the media, right, left. Uh, to get on television, and it, it further divides. And so it's hard for, the, the media doesn't pay enough attention to people in the center who make the system work, even though they bemoan the fact that the system is not working. I mean, it's not quite a, pro, a, a proper metaphor, but you know, everybody says nobody ever covers all the safe landings of airplanes, but tragically, everybody covers a crash. And it's a little like that with our politics today. It's hard to get attention really for the extraordinary work that the problem solvers and now the bicameral group are doing. But, but if you have an argument and you're screaming at each other and the president is screaming at you and you're screaming back and blah, 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 uh, that gets a lot of attention. So I, I think sadly, uh, the media 
this is also magnified by the social media, which are platforms, uh, which are not unifying platforms. They, they, they allow people to go to where they're going to hear what they basically believed when they started out. And it's validated. And that doesn't lead to a frame of mind that's really, as I was trying to say with my long history lesson, uh, is fundamental to the operation of a democracy. You've got to be willing to listen to people who don't agree with you. You've got to treat them with respect. And then you have to think, you know, maybe they're right about some things here. Or even if they're not, I want to get something done, so I'm going to give them a few of the things they want if they give me a few of the things I want. And that's going to be progress. And uh, the media doesn't help that at all. Thank you, Senator. And Bob, thanks for the question. I, I refer you to uh, give the No Labels Office a call. They can get you a copy of Tony's uh, uh, piece if you haven't seen it. Um, next up is Omar Simmons. Omar, tell us where you're from and please ask your question. Hi, I'm, I'm Omar. I live in, uh, right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And my question is uh, a little similar around the polarization and what we can do about it. Uh, obviously, I agree with the media not helping, um, but I've also seen some data some analysis, I think it might have been from 538, that kind of suggested how each president was increasingly polarizing uh, in the last few elections. And so you could argue they're, it's, they're, they're symptomatic of something that's going on. And I wonder, how do we get to the root cause of those issues of this polarization? And, and more specifically, if things like, you know, how we uh, look at redistricting and how that affects um, the incentive to be more extreme and more concentrated. And so I'd be curious if there's something we, you think, uh, Senator, that no labels can do around uh, root cause issues, particularly political root cause issues like redistricting, where we could maybe uh, you know, create more incentives that have more reasonable people and represent it. So it's a really, um, really good question. I'm just going to react to the first part of what you said and then answer. Um, I was thinking about this the other day that probably the last president that we had that wasn't hated by a group of people, not just opposed, but hated and, and loved by another group, was uh, President Bush 41, George H.W. Bush. Clinton, Bush 43, Obama, Trump, wow. They've divided, I mean, either they've divided or the society has divided. Uh, around them. And it's a result of a lot of what we've been talking about, money in politics, media, uh, the sort of celebration of, if I can, celebrities. Um, the, the, but let me get to your question. And, and I, I will say generally, uh, No Labels has been more focused on process in the, um, in the Congress and trying to bring people together. And hopefully in 20. 24 will focus a little more on the presidency, but there's, and we've not been uh, about political reform, but there is no question that the gerrymandering of districts has had a, an adverse effect. And it's a, it's really a, a, a kind of a remarkable story because it, it begins with the Baker versus Carr a Supreme Court decision that was really a good decision. It said uh, these districts have been allowed to grow in different ways. So you got, uh, one district somewhere where it has a mil two million people and one that has 200,000 and each have one representative in Congress, that's not equal representation. So therefore, every 10 years after the census, you got to get together in the states and redraw the 
districts to make them as close to equal in population as you can. But what happened is that the politicians took it over and uh, in states where one party controlled, they really divided, so they benefited their party. In states where, let's say there was a Democratic Party and a governor and a Republican legislature, they compromised and they favored all the incumbents. And as you know, Omar, it, uh, it depends on who you talk to, but something like different analysts will say all but 35 or sometimes they say 50 of the seats in the House representatives are in a normal year not going to change on election day. In other words, the big day is the primary. And that clearly means that if you're an incumbent Republican, you're worried about a challenge from the right. So it makes you risk averse. And you talk about the earlier question, you don't want to take on your party. If you're a Democrat, you're worried about a challenge from the left. Also, same, same reaction. And that tends to divide. So there, there are some reforms that are, that are being tried. Started in California, it's been tried in a couple of other states where they have nonpartisan commissions draw the lines. And uh, it seems to be working better. It's not perfect, but it, at least it's not sort of cutting it up, really, to... to protect every incumbent you can possibly protect. And the result of that for our system has been exactly the opposite of what No Labels wants. So you're right. Thanks for the question. Omar, thanks for the question. Senator, thank you. Uh, next up, uh, Bill Kunkler. Uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, hello, Senator. Um, hello. I'm a Chicagoan and I'm, I'm currently residing in Colorado to stay away from uh, What's been going on in Chicago, the pandemic and the uh, and the, uh, you know, just the civil uh, unrest. My sure. question is basically I'm an establishment Republican, but I've never, never supported Trump. And I'm actually I've actually written a check for uh, Senator Biden. And I'm looking to really now 2022 as a Republican. I'm hoping we save the Senate. But I think. Donald Trump was a real bad experiment. And I think part of it goes back, goes to the RNC, not, and it would apply maybe to the DNC too. I think in order to run for president, you have to have held significant office, whether it's governor, member of either, either, either uh, Congress or the Senate, but something significant because it all, it's a way for really the nation to vet um, an individual without ending up with the horror story. I, I mean, I've personally, that's my personal opinion over the last three years. Um, but that would be, I, I would tell anybody in the RNC, I'm not giving you another dime unless you take this, you consider my idea carefully that, that we just can't pull anybody off the street to run for president. Thank you. No, good for you. I mean, good for you in telling the RNC that, and then people should tell the DNC from the other side. Um, in our system, well, we do have qualifications, obviously, to run for president, mostly age and citizenship, but um, uh, there ought to be informal qualifications. Now, with Trump, part of it is personality, and that's Trump. He has his own personality, but there's no question that uh, having having experience in government helps you uh, be effective in government, like it would in anything else. 
any other field. And um, so he he brought a whole set other set of experiences and capabilities with him, and uh, it's had an effect. I mean, uh, uh, John Bolton's book. I don't want to cite, but at least what I've heard about it, I haven't read it. It's part of what he's saying because Bolton is so much of an insider. He's had so much experience in government that he's probably shocked that somebody like Trump got to be um, president. But, you know, in the end, it's the old George Bernard Shaw line. And the great thing about democracy is that the people get what they deserve. And it's all a question of who you vote for. And, uh, you know, this is a, a big uh, crossroads moment. Uh, for us. I think Trump got elected in part because things were so bad and people wanted, felt the country was headed in the wrong direction, that Hillary, as capable as she was and as experienced as she was, looked like a return to the old ways that were not working. And uh, right now, the the, uh, wrong direction or right direction numbers, when you ask the American people, are worse than they, they have been for a long time. Now, that may get better if the virus begins to recede and the economy gets better. But um, I, I think they suggest that the president uh, is in some difficulty and, and uh, people want leadership to help, but uh, they also, I think, want a certain amount of calm to return uh, to the White House. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. You too. Bill, thanks for the question. Uh, Senator, uh, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, it's been a great conversation and, uh, and history lesson, and, and we thank you for both. Uh, really appreciate uh, not just today, but everything uh, you do for No Labels, uh, the guidance, the spirit. Uh, it's just been uh, um, irreplaceable. So, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend. Before we part, I want to turn it over to Bill Galston for a few posing uh, comments. Bill? Uh, you know, Andy, uh, in your opening, in, in your introduction of Senator Lieberman, uh, you referred to you know, his classmates and, you know, and how they anticipated his future. I have it on reasonably good authority that the senator's mother was ahead of Yale students for about 18 years. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, as for, uh, you know, as for Benjamin Franklin, it is absolutely true that he was 37 years older than Thomas Jefferson, which is the silver bullet explanation as to why he slept through most of the 63 <laughs> sessions of the, <laughs> of the Constitutional Convention, which in turn explains his reputation for probity. Uh, and the fact that he was so revered, if he, you know, you know, if if he had awakened and made some injudicious comments, uh, who knows how he would have been re- received. But now let me get let me get a little serious for a minute. Uh, you know, Senator, you you referred to JFK's Yale commencement speech. Uh, I've done a lot of odd things in my life, and one of them was that I was actually present to hear that speech. Uh, you know, and I remember, I remember clearly that Kennedy, after, you know, his famous line about a Harvard education and a Yale degree, went on to list the number of Yale graduates who were giving him a lot of trouble as president, starting with Roger Blau, the chairman of U.S. Steel, uh, who 
evoked a famous comment from the president that I think I will not repeat, or I couldn't before cleaning it up considerably. But the heart of that speech was a declaration that is truly amazing in retrospect. Kennedy announced that the age of ideology was over. The great right. contests of the past, not only across national boundaries, but within the United States were over. And all of our arguments now were about different means to shared ends. That was then, this is now. And unfortunately, I don't think that anybody could make the same observation now. As you pointed out, even, be, even within the political parties, we have a return of ideological contestation. So no labels is playing a game. It, it's an away game, right? The no labels is doing what it's doing in a field defined by people who are creating the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, which is another way of saying that this is going to be really steady work. They're like waiting for the Messiah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the people on this call are an essential part of that work, but we all have to understand that it's gonna be a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, it's gonna require a lot of patience, and there are going to be a lot of setbacks along the way. Uh, some will be tempted to conclude that it's mission impossible. It's not. It's mission possible because it's mission necessary. Uh, and But people who are entering the no labels fold now, who are going to become leaders in cities around the country, uh, this is a tough game. It's a tough game for high stakes. Uh, and we're all going to have to stick with it, not just for the months to come, but for the years to come if we want to get the job done. And I just hope I live long enough to see the successful completion of our mission. Thank, once again, Senator, thanks so much, Andy, Thank as you, always. Uh, you're a great moderator, and uh, I believe we are now adjourned. Thanks, Bill. Have a good evening, everyone. Take care. Senator Lieberman emphasizes the importance of compromise in U.S. history, beginning with the Constitutional Convention and the famed Connecticut Compromise, which created the U.S. House and Senate. It's a lesson that both he and No Labels believe our leaders urgently need to relearn today. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.